I'm on the ride of a lifetime. I'm on a ship that's sailing to uncharted shore, and I. Live from Salt. All right, we're back on. Sorry. Usually, as time goes on, people become more and more professional. In my life, I'm degenerating before your very eyes. All right, live from the Mecca of, well, we're not saying that anymore. Live from Salt Lake City, this is Heart of the Matter, where our aim is to help all people worship God in spirit and in truth. I'm your host, Sean McCraney. It seems that Brother John DeLynn of Mormon Stories fame is uh, being threatened with excommunication from the LDS Church. I say good. I say praise God. I love John and his family and consider the actions of the LDS institution a blessing to John's uh, life and his family's life, rather than a, uh, a thing of shame or a curse or a blight to his good name. I mean, do we mourn when a person is released from prison? Uh, or if they are cured of a disease? Or if they're asked to leave organized crime? Uh, which I don't even know if that ever happens. Uh, <laughs> Guido, get out of here. You are out of the family. Well. Uh, no, we rejoice for them and their emancipation from their former confines, right? So I see the church's action toward John in the same light. And to be honest, I think anyone actually who is excommunicated from any religious organization for reasons other than them being, you know, a, a threat physical, they're, they're threatening people physically and emotionally and they're just, you know, a danger. Um, I think it's a cause to celebrate, not to mourn that they get kicked out of the institution that won't have them. I mean, why? Who in their right mind wants to belong to a church which ought to be a hospital for the sick that kicks the patients out when they need the church the most? Now, I know, I know very well what Paul says about not associating with sinners in Scripture. It's one of the problems of taking scripture today and assigning it and applying it to our time and our lives. And we're going to get into that topic a little bit deeper as we go. But in my opinion, John DeLynn is a blessed man. And I pray that he finds a gathering of, of good believers up there in Logan, Utah, where he lives, who aren't bent on controlling each other, but are bent on doing all they can 
to love Jesus and to love people in Jesus' name. Let, let's see. What? Okay. Hey, listen, take a look at this. We thought this was funny. Uh, it has Jesus say, uh, let me in. And the person on the other side says, why? And he says, so I can save you. And the person says, from what? And he says, from what I'm going to do to you if you don't let me in. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that is pretty darn good, isn't it? Isn't that kind of how we teach it, you know? Isn't it funny what we do? We, we speak from both sides of our mouth. We tell people out on the street, you know, Jesus loves you. Come into the church. He accepts you as you are, as you are. Come, be with us as you are. And then once you get in there, if you're not like them, they're like, get out of here if you don't conform to us. It's just crazy making. Okay, anyway, heard rumors last week that LDS faithful Mitt Romney is possibly gearing up for a third attempt at the White House a few people have asked thoughts on that. Let me kind of lay them out. First of all, you probably know I am not politically minded at all in any way. I have no interest in it at all. North Korea could have a candidate running as far as I'm concerned. It's not going to get a rise out of me. Why? Because my Lord and God said this, my kingdom is not of this world. And if he said it, that's my case too. Uh, God is in charge. Whatever happens in this arena, he allows, according to Romans, and uh, disallows, so I really don't care about politics for, for politics' sake. Um, second, we know that the LDS uh, will forever have a candidate from this point forward who's going to be trying to get into that uh, highest office in the land. It's part of their uh, historical character. It's part of their religious DNA. So it's not going to go away. And so, again, with God in charge, we will get who we get. I know it's, uh, it really makes people squirm, but God allowed Obama, according to Romans, to take the presidency, okay? And if he gives this mitt, so be it. Uh, third, my past comments on LDS candidates has always been couched in the opinion that in terms of ability or governess, it's my personal opinion that an LDS candidate would probably... Uh, be superior to most uh, or all others. I mean, probably. I mean, let's be honest. Mormon boy got game. They know how to do stuff like that, right? And let's, I mean, we just have to say that. But here's the deal. No active LDS promoting candidate deserves to be elected. And here's, here's what I mean by this. I think that the public has to continue to send a strong message to the LDS leadership that says, Hey, we understand your merits. We understand your abilities. But until you really come clean and you sever ties with the doctrines and practices that you guys continue to do based off what your founder got you to do, you're never going to get national support ever. That should be the message we send to them. You see, it's not punitive. It's done out of love for the LDS people who are trapped in that religion and it's who always get their, I mean, the, the church gets their way through political sway and through money and through power. And so it would be great if the, the nation continually sends a message and says, fix your stuff and stop uh, pussyfooting around here and making up uh, false revisionist history of yourself and act like you don't accept things anymore when you secretly do. Come clean, get rid of your garbage, and then we'll elect one of yours. 
Um, it could go a long way in liberating people if we stuck to our guns. But some things have changed in my mind since the last time Romney ran. Uh, for instance, I think any person running for office ought to have their religious stance vetted. Um, a KKK member ought to have his faith exposed to the world. What do you believe? What do you stand for? David Duke, tell us what you believe. Why? An evangelical Christian like Mike Huckabee should have his faith absolutely vetted in the public eye. I would hope that the nation would expose any idiotic religious views of every nominee with as much fervor as they do with Romney. I'm not saying hold back on Romney, give him both barrels, but I think every, every, every evangelical candidate should be asked if they believe God created most of humanity to be kindling for eternity. I think that's a reasonable question to ask a presidential candidate. Do you, sir, actually believe that God has created most people to burn in hell forever? That would tell you a lot about the mindset of a candidate, wouldn't it? Shouldn't a candidate be asked if he thinks Jesus is supposed to come back at any minute and wipe out the most of the planet? I think that says a lot about a candidate's mindset if he has his finger on the button, don't you? And, I mean, shouldn't every evangelical candidate be asked to explain? Please explain to our audience the Trinity. That would be comical, wouldn't it? Well, he's one and three and three and one, and he's an egg that's white and yolky in a shell, but not really separate and yet distinct. I mean, it's just amazing what would happen if we vetted every candidate with the same fervor, and I think we should. Muslims, too. Anybody. So... Whether an LDS or a rabid evangelical futurist or a twisted Calvinist is running for public office, I think all of them should have to pass the litmus test of what is a reasonable, rational view of God before they take the highest uh, office in the land. And with that, why don't we have a word of prayer? Father God in heaven, who we don't know completely, nor do we understand completely, and uh, we come to you with uh, rose-colored glasses, and we see through glass darkly. And as we fumble our way through this life, we pray that you will grant us patience and humility and uh, an idea that we don't have all the answers, and, but that we can uh, spot the things that aren't making sense and aren't promoting your glory and aren't lifting you up as a God of love. So help us now. Be with our, our studio audience, wherever they may be, and... Help people who are seeking for truth. Bless our volunteers and, and the staff and people who give so much time to get the program off and running. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, here we go. Unlike most of the controversial things we've discussed, especially in the past year, the stance I'm going to take tonight on the Bible is not one I have heard or learned from any other believer or group of believers. I cannot support my view by any sizable consensus. In other words, my views on eternal punishment, the reconciliation of all human beings to God in the end, Jesus' second coming, and the Trinity have all been accepted and taught by a number of good Christians before I ever became a Christian. I mean, we're talking hundreds of years back. People have taught this stuff from the Bible. It was not unique to me. I've started to see it and believe it and found things, and, and then it just went from there. So, um, but my particular view on the Bible, I have not heard or seen. It doesn't mean it doesn't exist, and people haven't explored or taught it before. I've just never seen it before. And this is unfortunate because 
this fact gives even more firepower to my critics out there uh, who really go after me for the way I see things. Let me reiterate that I claim absolutely no heavenly authority to speak on matters other than my faith and love in the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't claim any gift of prophecy, and I don't hold myself up as any sort of religious reformer uh, or leader. Uh, I am the lowest of low of men, saved by the highest of high of gods, and uh, even Jesus Christ. And he is all I have. He is all that I am and all that I ever will be. And if I do not glorify him with my views, I am an utter failure. And so I seek his approbation in the things that we uh, share and the things that I think and believe. May the Spirit guide. Now, most Christians have some idea of the role the Bible has played in the history of Christianity, a history that is rife with some extreme ugliness, real ugly stuff in our history. So we accept the Bible as the Word of God and readily include it kind of as a brick in the foundation of our faith, which includes prophets in the Old Testament, apostles in the New, with the chief cornerstone of the foundation being Jesus Christ. That's how Paul describes it. Christians love the Bible for the most part, uh, accept its teachings again for the most part, and employ its contents in lessons and in sermons uh, that they hear and receive and give on an almost weekly basis, again, for the most part. There is a whole line of assaults against the Bible out there. They are known as coming from places called higher criticism or from the atheists, and they speak to everything from the Bible's apparent obsolescence uh, to its archaic human origins to a multiplicity of apparent errors and to a questionable history. We're going we're gonna, to, in the weeks to come, try to get to all that stuff and examine it, and we will say, this is true, or we will say, this is false, uh, which is often. There is so much out there that makes claims against the Bible, and it's utter rubbish. It doesn't have a leg to stand on. Uh, in my estimation, the criticisms and opinions against the Bible are mostly answerable with a reasonable pose, and they, they're no real threat to the body of Christ. There's a much bigger fail, however, in the Christian's view and use of this amazing book, and that's our topic for tonight that we're going to launch into. In my opinion, it is really irrelevant whether some books didn't make it into the biblical lineup or if some books did that shouldn't have, as we talked about last week. It's also irrelevant if there are errors in our modern translations and inconsistencies and the like. To me, the Bible as we know it was, if it was only one book instead of 66 books compiled into that one tomb, uh, it would suffice in my opinion if it was read in conjunction with the Holy Spirit. For it's the Spirit that takes that, those written words and brings them into the heart of the human being. Uh, uh, not the paper and not the ink. Not those, the ink that forms words. There is no magical power to the words. They have to be read in conjunction with the Holy Spirit. Along this line, it is of great interest that Many believers over the course of Christian history never had access to the Bible at all. And yet God was still able to bring many children to him in and through uh, the Holy Spirit, right? 
So we're going to cover this fact in weeks to come as well. Now, right at this point, I want to, uh, the point I want to make is that the problem we face in the body relative to the Bible is not so much from the translations that we have, nor is it from the vast and varied interpretations of the Bible. God knows that human beings, we see things differently and that we will see matters differently of theology. But again, more on this point too later. The biggest problem, in my opinion, we face relative to possessing and using this beautifully inspired gift from God has been and continues to be the errant application of its content to our lives and to doing church. It's not what's written. It's not the ideas behind it and the varied ideas behind it. It is how we take what's in it and apply it to ourselves, to others, and to doing church. Most people, pastors included, when they read the, when they get the Bible and they're going to present something out of it, they will read it. Now, I know that sounds ridiculous. I hope they'll read it. And what I mean by this is they will try to observe what is being said. And this is the first part of a sound exegetical view of the Bible is observation. You observe what is being read, who said it, where they said this thing, why they said what they said, what was going on and caused them to say it. We call this the observation phase. To read without observation leads to all sorts of problems in, when we read the Bible. You've got to observe those questions, the W questions. Once a person has observed all they can about a passage or passages, uh, we then are, go to the second phase, and that's we interpret. We take all the W's and say who, what, where, when, why, and then we say what now is, is, is going on. This phase or step of uh, studying the Bible can get real dicey. I think history has proven that when 10 people get together and they study something in the Bible, it, they are capable of producing 10 different interpretations, aren't they? Jesus, when he said, let the dead bury their dead, we can all observe what was being said, where it was said, who said it, how he said it, the context of how it was said, and use all these observations, we are better equipped to make an assessment of how to interpret what that means. And, and yet, we're not going to probably be perfect in that interpretation. Sometimes we might strike 100% and hit the bullseye. Other times we could be off. We get close, but it takes a lot of backstory and scriptural knowledge and study of words chosen and looking at the Greek language and looking at the Hebrew sometimes and culture to really kind of get what Jesus meant when he said, let the dead bury their dead. Uh, in my opinion, the key to interpretation is the Spirit of God. We do all the homework, but we, we seek the Spirit to enlighten us and open our eyes to what is being meant in the context of all of our observations and interpretations. More on this later, though. Let's stay on target. Obviously, interpretation is problematic, and they typically cause division among the body of believers, which has led to countless sects and denominations, all of it based on interpretation. Some of these divisions have been so brutal that believers have decided to kill other believers 
over their interpretation of the words written in ink on paper and their practice in just what they believe in their heart. Men and women, I guess, who have followed Christ say that person deserves to die for the way they have interpreted what is on that page. All in the name of I am right and you are wrong. Now, should believers who are believers in the same Lord, who are baptized in the same body by the same spirit, divide over interpretation? They have for thousands of years. In my opinion, these divisions are the result of nothing more than human ego, arrogance, false piety, and pride, and they are typically promoted either by ignorant zealots who are just motivated by the zealotry of their faith, lacking information, or the proud learned who think their doctrinal stance is what makes them a Christian, that they have advanced degrees, and because they have knowledge, they think that knowledge places them in a place that is superior to somebody who reads by the Spirit. The dogmatists convince themselves that they are doing the Lord's work by demanding compliance to certain interpretations, but all we really get from that is more division. That's how it's been from the beginning. What does it matter if one believer says, let the dead marry their dead is a literal figure of speech, and another person says Jesus was being figurative. What does it matter if one believer says he doesn't believe hell will last forever or the lake of fire, and another person says, I believe it does? What does it really matter if another person's interpretations are completely different from anyone else's? I personally do not care what a person's doctrines are. I don't care what they have chosen to believe. I might discuss with them. I might try to sway them to another view. But if someone ardently says, uh, God is a trinity, hell is forever, God appointed most of the population for hell, and or this and or that, and let their dead means uh, you should be dead, uh, my job is to say I love you. And may God bless you in your search for truth and to continue to, to be a brother or a sister with them. This is not ecumenism. This is not saying all roads lead to heaven. This is simply saying anyone who's claiming Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior and is attempting to realize him more and more through a study of scripture and has variant views, uh, they're, they're my brother or sister. Why can't we do that among the body? But instead... The zealots or the, or the learned come in and they say, no, there's a theology test when you die. You sit down in a test and examination room and you have a book this thick and it's, it's number two pencil and it's bubble and you fill in. And if you don't get 100%, you can forget about heaven, buddy. It's never been that, never will be, never has. It's just Jesus. It's just faith. It's just love. And we all come around to these places in different ways and different means through different thoughts. And 
So we make observations, and then we try to interpret what is being said. And while I think we can collectively go a long way in improving in our maturity levels when it comes to interpretation, I suggest there is something far more deleterious that has been going on in the body uh, for centuries. And that's the third step, application of what we've interpreted. How we apply what we have observed and interpreted in Scripture to modern Christian living, to doing church, to reaching and teaching others to our faith and our love. I would humbly but boldly claim that it is this area of biblical application that the body went astray almost two uh, millennia ago and where it continues to falter even today. Uh, I know, I know, I know, I know who the hell do I think I am that I could actually spit in the wind of 1,800 years plus of religious tradition and biblical scholars and learned men and women and suggest that they have been misled in the way they have applied the Bible to doing Christian life. Who do you think you are? I don't know who I am when it comes to this. I might be crazy. I might be a fool. I might be inspired. I'm not sure. But I can say this is how it comes together for me. This is how when I sit down and read it, this is what speaks to me. And I'm going to be true to that. If I am crazy, discover that and, and don't listen to me. If I'm wrong in spots, you can call me out on it and go on and love me or you can choose to fight it. But just understand, I pray to God that it's from him and not Satan and who gives me the perspectives. And sometimes I don't know, and I know this will get to your gag reels, and you'll use this, but that's just the honest truth. If you think that you can stand up and speak certainty on every uh, point, have at it. I'm not going to be answerable to God that way. I'm going to say, look, I, I'm trying my best. Strike me dead, prove me wrong if I'm off. I know the scholarly brethren, and, and there are brothers, and the apologetically driven brothers and sisters laugh at me and they mock at me. They, they consider me a buffoon and uh, maybe for good reason. But I can say this, I've yet to have anyone, scholar, zealot, friend or foe, provide me a superior biblical support than the one I'm gonna give you on the things right now and in the weeks to come. I've yet to hear one. Uh, if you listen really closely to critics and really closely to their claims, all I seem to hear in response to my ideas are some selected passages, uh, the promotion and propping up of tradition as though that makes it right, and the injection of personal opinions and lots of uh, invectives and scorn and scoffing. That's what I hear. But I have yet to hear someone give me a systematic response to things like this and say, this is why. And the reason we don't hear it is because they can't. Not using the Bible. 
So I want to try and prove my stance by using biblical evidences, not just personal opinion. Here we go. We're going to start off with a quote that, that reiterates much of what I just said so that we can start rolling forward and just more and more snowball the stuff. Ready? The problem we have in the body today is not with the Bible itself. It's not its content structure, various translations, or its apparent inconsistencies. The problem Christians face today and have faced for nearly 1,800 years isn't in the books that have been included or excluded from the text. The problem isn't really even in our various interpretations of the Bible's messages. Such opinions ought to freely and openly exist as they collectively serve to help bring believers to new conclusions and insights. The problem the modern Christian body faces relative to the Bible is our continued and errant application of its contents to doing church to our claims of ecclesiastical authority and to the idea that modern Christian living must be policed, managed, and directed by men or boards of men. Enormous issues were created the moment men in the third and fourth centuries made the assumption that, based on the biblical narrative, they not only have the right but the Christian duty to hijack the contents of the Bible, strip them of their original content, impregnate them with their own definitions, and then use them with impunity to govern and control the actions and thoughts of others, other people seeking Jesus by the Spirit. The moment the body accepts the fact that the Bible is a literal, physical history written at a time and place that has nothing to do with believers today, Christianity will begin to thrive on the immense spiritual applications provided them in the Bible and cease to divide and die on hills unworthy of the title Christian. Admittedly, it's really, really easy when backed by this enormous history of Christianity to believe that we are supposed to take the Bible as our guide on how to do church, how to govern gatherings of believers, and how to govern and disciple individual Christians. And while this stance appears to be substantive, there's no biblical directives that supports it. None. Nowhere does the Bible say that the writings directed to believers then and there were written for our day now. Nowhere do any apostles write and say, this is how to play church now and forevermore. The idea is not even implied it's not even implied. I mean, if God wanted a physical church to roll forward with its members using the Bible as their manual on how to do everything, wouldn't he have been much more straightforward about that command? Wouldn't he have had someone say, this is how I want it done from this point forward like the LDS maintain? And wouldn't the Bible have been available to the nascent church early on instead of 1,500 years after the death and resurrection and ascension of Christ? I mean, wouldn't that, if it had that role as a manual from the very beginning, wouldn't the manual have, have rolled forward with some real direct instructions on we need to take this and use it? But all we really have in the biblical account is the early church apostolic church doing what it needed to do to survive in an environment that has literally no connection to our modern world or ways at all. 
And what is perfectly clear, especially in the New Testament, is it was written to the saints at that time, telling them how to survive until Jesus returned to save them, which he did, or he was a liar. Try and understand, I trust the content of the Bible as being inspired and having tremendous, even unparalleled purpose in the spiritual growth of believers today. But we have to admit that we have as a means to perpetuate what the apostolic church faced, taken this narrow historical account of life as a Christian in the Middle East and made a mountain of untenable ugliness around us. That's what we've done. I'm speaking as clearly and honestly as we can. Look at church history since 70 AD on what Catholicism and everything else. Look at what we have done to each other using this as a literal guide for how we're supposed to do things. I mean, the actual footprint of where all of this takes place essentially is, represents 1% of the entire land mass of the earth, okay? It, that's how much geography, everything that happens in there took place on 1% of the entire earth. And, and it relates to a culture that's absolutely foreign to us today and has been foreign to every English-speaking person and probably most Middle Easterns. Easterners. So Christianity is not a physical reality. Listen to me. The only time it was was when Jesus Christ walked physically on this earth. Then it was a physical reality. The kingdom of God is within us, is what scripture says. It is a holy spiritual reality manifesting itself in this fallen material world as the only solution, a spiritual kingdom within believers. That is the solution. It cracks me up when modern Christians adopt uh, first, uh, uh, first century Christian things like when you go into a church and you see like big boulders and palm trees that are supposed to look like Jerusalem. I mean, what are we doing? What is that? It's like, that's the only way you can be a Christian? I mean, I, I mean wasn't there ersatz and, and plastic for Christians somewhere too? Does it have to replicate what we read in this to be Christian? Give me a break. Do you have to always use that font that looks like it was written on papyrus? What is all that about? It's just, it's just us taking this and saying, this is what it means to be a Christian. It has nothing to do with it. It's internal. It's the heart. It's the spirit. Christianity is known, is knowing God in the spirit and in truth from the heart and from any culture any place on earth, from a bar stool, from a strip club, from a church pew, from a library, in Laos, in Japan, in Australia, in Africa, in America, in South America. It has nothing to do with Jerusalem being applied to all of that. It's a spiritual kingdom. But these things are not why I believe our application of the Bible has to change. This is, these are this pet little... Uh, prefaces. For instance, allow yourselves to consider the physicality, and we'll end with this point. I have more. 
present in God's interaction with the nation of Israel. Stay with me. This is important. It's a good building block. Almost everything God did with the nation of Israel was manifested materially, physically, in ways in how God was working with them. Obey outwardly and be blessed. Didn't matter what the heart was thinking then. Disobey outwardly and you're cursed. Okay? Commit adultery, you're stoned. Don't commit adultery, you're blessed. Okay? Jesus said if you even look upon a woman, you've committed it in your heart. It moved inwardly with Christ and from his point forward. But with the nation of Israel, it's all outward. They had temples that were made with hands and special diets and special clothing and special things that they had to say. The heart was not necessarily involved, only the doing, the physical manifesting. It made the relationship. I mean, they saw God in a cloud by day and in a pillar of fire by night. They saw it physically. They were privy to parted seas. They were privy to water coming out of rocks and to talking donkeys, all of this stuff. Entire chapters of the Old Testament talk about leprosy and how to actually deal with leprosy, a very physical uh, illness that pictures something else later on, you see. And it all pointed to the single most important physical, material manifestation in the history of the world, the birth of a baby named Yeshua in a manger. That's the, that's the material culmination of the nation of Israel. They had been promised a Messiah and he came to them physically and materially. Note that he was born of a woman, God with us, Emmanuel. He lived a human life, a man of sorrows, afflicted. He performed actual physical miracles. He suffered a physical death. He bled physical blood. He rose physically from the grave. He ascended physically into the clouds. He promised to physically return to the house of Israel with judgment and with reward. If he was true to that promise, and I believe he was, then the entire physical economy established among the nation of Israel was utterly fulfilled and then it was utterly destroyed with the Temple Mount being leveled in 70 AD and the last two remaining tribes that were not scattered, Benjamin and Judah, being dispersed. It was over. Physical, done. Bye-bye, fathead, physical, done. Okay? From the time the kingdom was, from that time, the kingdom was based entirely now on spiritual influences governed by the heart of each individual by and through the spirit which testifies to the world that Christ Jesus lives and is calling to all. Did you catch that? The material Messiah disappeared for good. Material Messiah gone. And the body of Christ has ever since been in the hands of the holy invisible invisible spirit. Okay, that's who's in charge, not apostles, they're gone, not Jesus, he's ascended and on his throne. It is now governed by the Holy Spirit that Jesus sent to testify of him. All the work is done in the heart and on the minds of men and women 
with all the former shakeable elements is what Hebrews calls it. He says, one last time, I'm gonna shake heaven and earth and anything that is shakeable will crumble. And then what will remain is what is unshakable and that you can place your trust upon. Let me ask you a question. Is a brick and mortar church shakeable? Are governing boards of men shakeable? Is a pastor who stands in front of you and gives himself authority shakeable? You're damn right they're shakeable. But there's nothing shakeable about a kingdom that has been decimated in the physical sense, but thrives in the spiritual sense. We have made the mistake of taking the Bible and applying it and saying, look it, we have to replicate what this, what this Bible says. No brick and mortar edifices govern us. No water ordinances are there to cleanse us. No memberships uh, to, uh, to create a culture for us that we have to belong to. No contracts that we have to sign. No things that we can and can't eat. Nothing we can and can't drink. None of that. It's all misapplication. You want misapplication? Mission trips. We read that Jesus sent in the Great Commission his apostles out to testify of him in that area. We go on mission trips. We're going to cover mission trips, and you're going to get blown away by what, what has been found on short-term mission trips and what a joke they are and what a little mini vacation they turn out to be, how unfruitful they are in terms of what they do, and how much advantage foreign countries take of the gullible Christian missionaries from the USA who step into Uganda, and they'll put up the, the, the medical uh, house that they built the year before and act like it's in operation. When the, when the missionaries leave, they just let it go, and they never use it again. It's all a scam, because we have tried to take a physical economy and and then make it continue to live when god said i sent my holy spirit it's a spiritually divine kingdom the holy spirit can't be captured by a church the holy spirit can't be let out when the church starts and then taken back in and put in the box the holy spirit does what it wants to do it doesn't show up because of the zealotry of the of the preacher or his zeal for the message it doesn't show up because the band is really rocking the Holy Spirit cannot be governed by us. It governs itself. It goes where it desires and it touches people who are sitting in bars and cars and playing guitars and smoking cigars. Thank you, Deborah Harry. Christianity has nothing to do with brick and mortar religion. Christ's kingdom is spiritual and it is known and perceived by the Spirit. Those are the first points. We're going to come back. I've got a lot more, as I said. Can't cover it now, but we're going to continue on this discussion. And I'm going to give you more and more fortifications from the Word to establish this principle. And we'll see if we can try to come to some reasonable conclusions about how we have misapplied this book in terms of how we're supposed to be doing everything when it's truly, obviously, from the book's uh, account, a spiritual thing. Let's open up. The phone lines, 801-590-8413, 801-590-8413. We're going to come back. We have a question here off the phone question. Take a look at this. I would be doing the Lord and every viewer a disservice if I said Mormonism is Christian because it's a lie. American evangelical Christianity. We're going to go after its politicking. We're going to go after its demands. We're going to go after its culture. 
we're going to go after its doctrine relative to what the Bible says. I do not believe any Christian has the right to demand that another believer receive such man-made terms or creeds or demands us to receive anything else. So I'm not going to get into a war with, with other believers over doctrine. I'm not going to do it. That is the opposite of what we're told to do. We're told to love. But think and go to God and open up your scripture and search and let's try to figure this out together and let's cast off anything that is not biblical. In the end, we hope this couple will be able to produce a little baby we call truth. 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 I like that hairstyle, that one, it buzzed on the side and long, looks so ugly. Okay, uh, was John of Patmos the same disciple John or a different John in the book of Revelation? There's a debate right now as to whether uh, the, the author of the book of Revelation was John the Beloved. I think it was, uh, but there's some higher criticism that are saying it wasn't John the Beloved, but my answer would be I think it was. Uh, there's only there's two Johns, big Johns in the uh, New Testament. There's John the Baptist, and then there's John the Beloved. John the Beloved was uh, one of Jesus' apostles, and he wrote the Gospel of John, and he wrote the Epistles of John, uh, first, second, third. Apparently, there's debate on that. And then he also uh, received the uh, revelation of Christ while on the Isle of Patmos, and it's believed that that is the same John the Revelator he's also known as. The second part of the question is also, could the book of Revelation have been meant only for the seven churches of that time period, or could it have been meant for that time period and for the future? You know, uh, last week someone made a point. Dell, he wrote a letter to, an email to us, and he said, it was funny, Sean, on the show when you were talking about how you don't really appreciate the book of Revelation, when the caller was calling and talking about hell being eternal or the lake of fire being eternal, you quoted from Revelation. And he said, so it does have a purpose in our Bible. He said, I agree with you. I don't think its purpose is for us to try to figure out all that esoteric language and all the meaning behind it, which was written to the seven churches. But it does have a purpose. And I have to say, I don't even know what it means, but touche. Uh, because I guess it does have its place. I quoted from it because it did offer information to clarify things. And I trust in God. I, you know, don't get me wrong. I just find it so difficult to try to constantly, you have people who don't even hardly know how to walk as a babe in Christ and they want you to explain Revelation. It's like, you know, spend 30 years in the book of John and Romans and Hebrews and then we'll start talking about Revelation. But they always want to put that one first and it, it's a source of frustration. I don't mean to infer that it shouldn't be there. I just sometimes wish it wasn't. I'm just trying to be honest. Back to, uh, you know, our uh, kind of, I'm going to read some things and you tell me where you think it's from. Well, this is obvious, but it's really interesting and it really proves my point of application here. Uh, it's, it's, it's seven points. Here's a resolution that was actually submitted to vote in the Oklahoma state government as provided by Right Wing Watch. Whereas the people of Oklahoma having a strong tradition of reliance upon the creator of the universe and... Whereas we believe our economic woes are consequences of our great national moral crisis and 
Whereas the nation has become a world leader in the promotion of abortion, pornography, same-sex marriage, sex trafficking, divorce, illegitimate births, child abuse, and many other forms of debauchery. And whereas alarmed by the government of the United States of America is forsaking the rich Christian heritage upon which this nation was built. And whereas grieved that the office of the president of the United States has refused to uphold the long-held tradition of past presidents and giving recognition to our national day of prayer. And... Whereas, deeply disturbed by the office of the president in the United States, disregards of biblical admonitions to live clean and pure lives by proclaiming an entire month to an immoral behavior, colon, now therefore be it resolved that we, the undersigned elected officials of the people of Oklahoma, religious leaders and citizens of the state of Oklahoma, appealing to the supreme judge of the world, solemnly declare that the hope of the great state of Oklahoma and of these United States rests upon the principles of religion and morality as put forth in the Holy Bible, period. Okay, now, morals and clean living, by all means, we want that because it leads to happiness. And we go the opposite way, and it leads to destruction and pain and sorrow and woe, and God does not want us doing that. So we teach those things. The problem I have is that he says, that this uh, article says, that rests upon, what they're saying, rests upon the principles of religion and morality as put forth in the Holy Bible. So, exact my point message tonight. Uh, Polygamy is put forth in the Holy Bible, okay? Um, there are instances of incest. Actually, Judah, his relationship with Tamar, his daughter-in-law, was part of the line that produced the Christ. Um, slavery is talked about openly in the Bible, and it essentially endorses it because it was a social uh, uh, event at that time. Who says what is the... Uh, is put forth in the Holy Bible that should be our moral stance, and who says it shouldn't? It's application here. The appeal to it is by the Spirit. It is not by the letter. Paul says the letter kills. You write letters, you automatically have law. And when you have law, you automatically have division, and you have opposite sides, and you have breakers of the law, and you have criminals, etc. Paul says be dead to the law, live by the Spirit. This is my point. Now, I know it's out there, and I know it's scary, but it is necessary if we're going to have a healthy, vibrant Christianity that's going to survive through this age of internet and information and, and, and creationism being challenged by all these other things going on. We have to make some moves that are going to be reasonable and pull away from this type of thing. Let's go to Jason, Ontario, Canada. On line one, Jason, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi. Um, yeah, I, um, a couple of things that were um, mentioned in, the, in your program tonight. We, um, in my young adults group at the church I attend, um, we kind of touched on a couple of similar things that were brought up. And one of the verses that were mentioned was um, John 13, 34, and 35. Um, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And like one couple of things we mentioned was, it does not say 
people will know we are his disciples by our doctrine or how we look or the music we listen to or social status or political affiliation or whatever. It's people will know we are his disciples by how we love one another. Isn't that and, beautiful? Pardon? I said that is beautiful, isn't it? Yeah. And my next point, I'll have to do a quick little history of myself. I never grew up religious. I hated religion and especially Christianity. And um, one of the biggest reasons I hated Christianity was because um, I saw the division. I saw the hatred a lot of these denominations had for one another. And I told myself, why should I waste my time even trying to understand or believe Wow. Anything the Bible has to say based on the hatred that current believers have for one another based on doctrine, music, looks, social statuses, political affiliations, all this other stuff, right? And I heard something um, years ago that said um, it's one of the biggest uh, enemies of Christianity is Christianity. Yeah. Because of our hatred and division and inability to love one another. Because how can we love people who are not in the church if we can't love <laughs> our brothers and sisters? Gosh. It's, I w- it's, I wish it's you an were impossibility. My, I wish you were my neighbor, Jason. You know, and let, yeah. me, let, <laughs> let, me, let me tell you something. You're in Ontario, Canada, and you have the heart of a true believer. I'm in an audience right now, and I'm looking at others in here that have that same heart. And I know that the true body of Christ is made of believers like this, Jason. And so share that light where you are. We'll try to share it where we are and try to keep this growing. Uh, We know it's gone on. True believers have always existed, but we have to keep that alive and avoid the, the hatred that is coming out and spewing out in all directions to be politically correct, doctrinally correct, practically correct, and, uh, and all this other garbage. Yeah. Thanks so much for your yeah. call, my brother. Yeah, no problem. Thanks. Okay, bye-bye. Uh, off-air question. In your opinion, why does John DeLynn want to remain a member of Mormonism when he knows that the doctrine is false? What do you think is his agenda? Uh, thanks from Joe. I don't think John has an agenda. I think that John sincerely loves the Mormon church. He loves the culture. He loves the people. He's a very decent man. Uh, he's a very kind man. He's a very affable man. And uh, he, he's, uh, I, don't, I don't think he has an agenda, but I do think if he does have an agenda, it's to root out all the stuff that is bothering him about Mormonism that I am focusing on within the body of Christ today. And so he's trying to remain in order to have an effective voice. I don't think he cares to remain anymore. I think he's done. I had a conversation with him two weeks ago, and I don't think he... Uh, Really, I think he expected this, and I think he's probably tired of it all. But nevertheless, he does love the LDS Church, and anybody who's been Mormon knows that there is an appeal to it, uh, it's, but it's certainly not the doctrine and practices. It's the culture, and so hopefully that will help. Do you agree that there is a JC of the Bible and a different JC for the Book of Mormon? I think uh, uh, Joseph Smith... Uh, was uh, raised in a Christian community. He essentially was espousing 19th century evangelical Christianity in the Book of Mormon. 
And I think most of the things that he was teaching through the Book of Mormon uh, were appeals to evangelical Christianity at the time. As, as Smith went, grew in his ego and in his imagination, he distanced himself from the teachings of the Book of Mormon, and he began to preach a completely different Jesus, ultimately getting to the point where God was once a man. And so uh, in the answer to the question is, I think, his intention in the Book of Mormon at the time of compiling it, he certainly thought he was preaching Jesus from the biblical Jesus perspective. I think later he morphed away from that, and we have the result. Okay, uh, here is a classic piece of Christian articulation, and it's this kind of thing too. Now listen, homosexuality is always coming up because it's like the hot-button topic uh, of Christians versus the world, right? There's so many other things that we could talk about, but i got to read this before we go. Mary Boyd on Disgracebook, whoever she is, she is listening to a bunch of Christians talk about homosexuals, and she says, You are all intolerant asses. I wish you could all see that people are truly just people. So what if they love people of the same gender? You all sicken me. Now, her response is pretty strong. Now, but this is the thing I want you to hear. This is the Christian response. Okay? Now, I realize we all have our different cousins in the Christian body, and sometimes we're a little ashamed of some of them. So this isn't probably fair, but listen to this. Intolerant? Looks like you're intolerant of homophobes. I'm going to call you biatch, okay? Biatch, there are many reasons as to why homosexuality is effed up. Number one, it's by choice. When a person willingly chooses to become gay, that's when I get angry. Not only am I angry that God doesn't exist, that, that gays even exist, I'm pissed that you consider gays as people. These people want special rights for them and them only. Since when is being a FAG entitled you to have extra credit rights? You know what they did back in biblical times? They killed gays. That's right. Stoned their asses to death. You know why? Because God hates gays. By not hating gays, you're disobeying him, and you don't want to go to hell, do you? Now, I mean, really? Just, did you hear that? Doesn't it embarrass you? You don't have to agree with homosexuality. You don't have to uh, say you think it's okay. You can say, I think it's a, a sin, and the Bible makes that clear. That's fine. You can say that in a completely different way. And I'm not criticizing the way he says it either, his language. I'm criticizing the mindset of taking this book and saying, you know what they did? They killed them. It's crazy. It's crazy where we've gone. Really quickly, one minute, Ed in Bozeman, Montana. Quick, you only got a minute, Ed. Hi, uh, I just wanted to tell you that uh, I wish I knew this program and this church was around when I was there in uh, Utah for, for work. And I just want to tell you, I, I greatly appreciate what you're doing because I feel so bad for these people who, who believe in this, in this religion that is false and and it's terrifying walking around, driving around there, seeing these temples and whatnot. It's just, it's just complete modern-day Babylon. It's terrifying, and I, and I, I really appreciate your work. Thanks, Ed. Thanks so much for watching. We really appreciate it, my brother. Yeah, thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Well, that's it for tonight. Next week, we're going to continue on. Where did the quote come from that you read earlier? From Jack the Ass. It was good to uh, be with you tonight. 
Let's pick it up next week. More great stuff about this topic, and let's examine it together here on Heart of the Matter. Bravo, Simon! Going nowhere. I am an existential cowboy on the And I won't be coming out, I'm going in. This man's awake, a storm's arising, the dawn's awaiting till a hundred monkeys know. And I can feel the 